This is Conversation 14. Bob is growing frustrated with the pace of Operation Gambat and the reluctance of the feds for him to go after Pat Marcy and the hierarchy of the Chicago outfit. So he becomes aggressive in true Bob Cooley form to start making cases and pushing the feds to go after the people that he thinks, once removed, will bring down the first ward in the Chicago outfit. This is Conversation 14. Enjoy. Bob, let's talk about that window of time when you started to wear a wire and how it was determined by you and or the FBI as to who you were going to target. After I went in and, and we talked about all that, and after they came in to see me, you know, I met with them and I told them that, you know, I'm willing, I want to cooperate. I said, I want to destroy the first ward is what I told them. I said, the first ward controls everything. Talking about the court system. And I'm talking about all the other, all the other projects, you know, in, in Chicago, uh, where they had absolute control over everything and everything was corrupt as could be. And I said, nothing will be changed unless we destroy the mob's control. That's Pat Marcy. And they want me to wear the wire on the bookmaker, which I do. And what I'm basically just going to be doing at this stage, they want to test me, you know, to see if I'm for real. Because they apparently they still don't, they still can't believe that they've got somebody in my position coming in and doing what I'm doing. And they think that, you know, I've got some kind of a scheme or whatever. They give me the first case. And they, they tell me, we've got a case that we, we want you to go before Judge Stillo, who's out in Maywood. Because I had told him, among others, that was one of the judges that I'd been paying off. And that was, was part of the inner circle of the first war. And they said, we've got a case. And we want you to meet with an agent we're going to bring in. Uh, so I meet them in a motel. And they tell me the scenario for speeding. He looks in and, and he sees a uh, open can of beer. He arrests him, charges him with a DUI with an open can of beer. And when I meet with these people, first thing I said to him, when I meet the agent, this guy looks like an agent. I said, he looks too crisp. And, and with the state policeman, uh, look, I said, here's what you've got to say. I said, among other things, it's a legitimate stop. I'm sure the judge will grant my motion to suppress and whatever. So in essence, you're helping them reverse engineer a sting operation. Yeah, this is the very first case. The state policeman stops a car. My career, probably 50 cases before still. He's never found anybody guilty on anything. I go in there. I put the case on. The agent comes in there looking again like like a million dollars. And while they're testifying, the state policeman testifies and says the thing I told him not to say. And the judge finds him guilty as we're there. We go in there and the judge finds him guilty. I'm, wow, I'm in a state of panic. I leave the court and we go out. And now I meet with the state police. I says, why did you say, you know, say what you said? I told you not to say that. He says, but that's the way it was. And I wasn't going to commit perjury in court. <laughs> Over a fake stop with a agent who wasn't I, even really I'm speaking? I'm telling you, he said to me, I wasn't going to commit perjury in court. <laughs> that's what he said to me. These guys are panic stricken. Oh, my God. They must suspect something. I've gone to see the judge beforehand. You know, in Maywood, you're not supposed to go back there into the chambers. I always did. In fact, I told you before, the security guy that keeps you from going back was one of Marco's guys. He's a guy who was laughing. Look at me. I got a gun. He's a burglar. I go back to see the judge ahead of time. And when I go back to see the judge ahead of time, and because Greylord is going on during this time, the, the trials are going on. Now, 
I hadn't done anything for probably two or three years with, you know, with any of these people. He may very well have known, too, that I was no longer partners with Johnny. Some of the inner circle people might have known that. Very few people realized that. They just thought that I had just moved my office and they had no idea that I had severed my relationship with the first ward. He told me, see my nephew, Joey, is what he said. See my nephew, Joey, afterwards, which would be, you know, the way, you know, these guys were doing business. These guys, oh, that's it. You're in trouble. You you know, we, you have to leave town. Uh, they must be on to you. If the judge finds him, you know, finds one of your clients guilty after you would talk to him. And before we panic, I said, let me talk to Joey and let me see what the hell is going on. Uh, I knew where his office was. It was over there on Monroe. I go up to his office. Joey, what the heck happened? And he said, the judge thought the guy looked like an FBI agent. This is all this is all recorded now. The judge thought it was an FBI agent. And, and apparently they followed him out afterwards. They saw him get into a car, and when they ran the plate, it came back blank, which means it's an undercover car. These guys are all part of the system. No registration came back, not registered to anybody. I said to Steve, and I'm, I'm talking now with Tom Durkin, who was the you know first assistant, who was the main guy I'm dealing with, and I said, we can still salvage this. I said, let me go see the judge. I go back to see the judge, and I said, judge, I just talked to Joey. And he said, you thought this guy was an agent. He said, he looked like an agent. You know, how well do you know, how long have you known him? How well do you know him? And I said, <laughs> I said to him, he's a commodity broker. He's the son of one of the top guys in Caesar's crew. Because I knew these people wouldn't know anything about what was going on in that on with their operation because they were totally severed, you know, from, from most of the others. I said, he's a commodity broker, Judge. And if he's found guilty, it might affect him getting a license. And he says, but, you know, you, you know his dad? I said, no, I've known his dad for 10, 15 years, I said. I said, he's one of the hitmen. I said, he's one of their hitmen. Uh, well, so I said, Judge, is there, what he had done was he gave him supervision. If he had really had common sense, he would have realized I'm giving him a pile of bullshit because, number one, supervision isn't even a, isn't even a conviction. It's a conviction, but it can be, re, it'll be erased. So what I said to him was, can we bring him, can I, can I bring him back in? Let me, I said, let me bring him back in. Can you terminate the supervision in standard, meaning, you know, mean, meaning right now, find him and then find him not guilty. And so he agrees to do that. Here's what's interesting. I never mentioned, I never mentioned any money, never mentioned how much I would give him and never, you know, nothing like that. We eventually convicted him and his, him and his nephew and put him in prison. That's what's so ironic about all this. So now, after he, after he finds him not guilty and they want me to go pay Joey, I says, no, I'm not going to go see Joey. Well, why? I said, because he might be suspicious and say, that's okay. We don't want anything. I'm not going to go see him. So I didn't. When we indicted him, we convicted them. <laughs> What's so ironical about this? Money was never mentioned when I talked to him, but the jury had to believe me when I told them how business was done and so forth and so on. After that, I was the one who decided how, you know, what we would do and how we would do it and, and how the different cases would go. I know how these people think and operate. And, you know, when they realized how the bullshit, in fact, I told them ahead of time it wasn't going to work and it didn't. Then when they thought we we're in serious trouble, I wind up making it a case. So what happened after that, I would come up and I would tell them, let's do this or let's do that. And now I'm told I can go after bookmakers and that's it. And I said, but, you know, 
we want to go to after the first ward. And that's when I was told Beluka said it was too dangerous for you and would not give me the okay to get a wire. So what I did, I, I wore a wire and a couple of other people and I made some payments. This isn't going to accomplish anything. Was the feds glomming them all together? Were they surprised at how much you knew and how much access you had? Or did you feel like they knew a lot, but they just didn't know how to roll people up? No, they didn't know anything about what was going on. And these guys, in fact, when I was put in touch with Jimmy Wagner, who was a supervisor, he didn't know what I was doing for almost two years. He had no idea that I existed. It wasn't until I was able to start wearing a wire on Marcy and on the others, and, and I set those up in my own way. Where were you with Johnny DeFranzo? Wasn't there something going on with him, and did we close the loop on what happened to him? Did he ultimately no, get you know, prosecuted? No. Yeah. He never got prosecuted. Johnny DeFranzo never got prosecuted. Yeah, I'm sure because he was represented by Jenner and Block. With Pat Marcy and the top mob bosses, they're represented by Jenner and Block, which was Volucas. He never got indicted. Uh, he was supposed to get indicted, and he got indicted in California for the Indian reservations where they had the gambling casinos, where he was extorting them. He got indicted on that, and they said, <laughs> I love it. They said, well, he's already got indicted on something out there, and he'll probably get a lot of time on that, so we're not going to indict him here. And they let the statute run on him. No, there's no question why he wasn't indicted. You know, they, they put rumors out there afterwards uh, because he never got indicted in Chicago on anything and that he was an informant. He was the boss. And the reason he wasn't indicted because he was represented by, by Belucas and company who was supposed to prosecute him. Back was there talk that he was an informant? What I'm talking about is with mob people and whatever. Why would he not be indicted on a half a dozen other things? And why would he not be indicted on my thing when I have him on tape indicating He's the mob boss. He's the one who runs everything. They did not indict him. He ended up dying of Alzheimer's in uh, 2018 at the age of 89. Yeah, but I'm telling you, he, he never got indicted because, as I said, the mob in the first ward was totally protected in every way and because they had Jenner and Block, which was the Justice Department. 60% of the people in there, but all the bosses in there always were connected to Jenner and Block. I'll tell you how I finally got the okay to start wiring up against these other people. But every single case... After that, I decided what we would do and how we would do it. And when we're going after certain people, they had no problem with that. They didn't know how these people thought I did. What I find really interesting is that you were navigating in almost an invisible pocket and in that when you went to them, they knew who you were, but they didn't know the extent of what you knew. And you were able to illuminate so much to them. They knew so little. Was that a surprise to you? Did you think that they probably knew more or or you didn't even that didn't even cross your mind? You weren't you didn't care about I, that. I just assumed the FBI was what the FBI was. Started to say when I talked to Jimmy Wagner and he's telling me about you know what what they found out. So ninety nine percent of it is total bullshit. They had no idea who was doing what. I, I was getting involved with the people that were doing all the stuff. I'm talking about a lot of the criminal activity and their informants. Nobody would give up Pat Marcy and nobody would tell him about Marco and nobody would tell him about Johnny DeFranco because they knew they'd get killed. They had no idea how powerful I was in the system, Neil. They had no idea. They knew I was a, obviously I would imagine my reputation was I was a fantastic lawyer. And my reputation was that I, you know, I was running, representing a lot of these people and I was seen with a lot of these people, but they had no idea how powerful I had become in terms of, in fact, 
in Chicago, Vince Gabb was a personal friend, you know, that I, I was in college with, and he was the license commissioner for the city of Chicago. The the the, commi- the license commissioner for the state was Bobby Whitebloom, who I'm with almost every day. I had managed to make, you know, to make contacts and, and to have all these people in my corner. But they had no idea, obviously, with like the one agent, you you can't talk to Johnny DeFranco. You had a hit list, if you will, of people that you wanted to see go down to execute your plan, which was to bring down the first ward. And you had systematically moved through a couple of folks and were on your way to really the most important person. Was Pat Marcy for you? Was he the snake's head or or was there someone? Absolutely. No, he was the guy. I had to get Pat Marcy, absolutely, no matter what. Then secondarily, John, who talked himself into it, and Patty, and some of the other main judges. What I did, when I was representing the Chinese people years before, that was the case that Pat gave to me, and that was the case that Pat fixed over there. About maybe a year or so after those cases, I had become friendly with a lot of lawyers there in New York. So with Danny Gotland, who was the one that used to represent him around the country until I stepped in. You'd think he was, he'd be furious, because he came to Chicago with that. And uh, and I chased them away. I took over the case and and uh, you know and brought my own guys in. And they had sent me a grand jury statement because a couple of those kids were cooperating with them, and they were tell- and they told the grand jury. I love these little darlings. They told the grand jury that I told them everything was going to be fine, and they were they were made aware that I was fixing the case which is total bullshit. But again, that was that was testimony they gave before the grand jury. It was either Danny or somebody else who sent me that stuff. Now, I had it at home. So what I thought I will do is uh, tell Pat uh, one day. Now, this I wasn't okay to wear a wire against him, so I went to see him. You know, and when, I, when I saw him there in council, I said, Pat, can I talk to you? And as I said, I hadn't been close to him at all for a long, long time. And what's up? And I said, I said, I've got these papers. Somebody just sent me some papers from the grand jury in New York on that Chinese case that that I had. I said that I had. And, uh, oh, yeah. I said, yeah. I said, you know, I'll get it tomorrow. I'll bring the papers down and show you. I said, they're investigating what happened here in Chicago. And he said, well, yeah, sure. Let me see those. So then I call Steve and I tell Steve, I, you know, what I had just done. I had talked to Pat. Now, these things were like four years old, three or four years old. Uh, you know, I've got these papers and I said, I told Pat, I'd come and see him, see if he can get me the, you know, the okay. So I got the okay to wear a wire and I put a wire on and I go back to see Pat. What I'm doing, when I show him these things, I've got my hand over the date because the date is like three, three or four years, you know, prior to that. And I'm giving him the impression it just happened just now, you know, investigating, you know, here in Chicago. I bring the papers with me and I says, Pat, I said, you might want to warn the judge. This is a case in New York. He said, oh, the case where you had to go to New York and get the balance of that money or something like that, <laughs> which puts him right on the case. You want to warn Maloney, uh, you want to warn the judge, you know, just in case. And he says he knows how to take care of himself. Don't worry about him. Now, I've already got Pat Marcy on, on tape, basically admitting that he was involved in, in this particular case. And I moved on then from there. What I did, too, because they wouldn't let me go after Marco and those people. I was going to the racetrack, Maywood Park, all the time. 
Jimmy Andreacci, Joey Andreacci's brother, he was the guy that passed out juice money to all the trainers and the jockeys and to the drivers and whatever. And uh, and I would sit with him at his table. Every Friday, you'd have Johnny DeFranzo there with Dvorak, the sheriff. They'd be up there every Friday. And uh, and I would be there and just always hide and talking a little bit with him and going about my business. One day I'm approached, when I'm up there, I'm approached by Tony Doty. He was he was Marco's right hand guy. He was the guy that he was the guy that kept all their money in bank vaults and all, and all the money was organized through him from all the gambling operations. He says, Bobby. He says, you know, how come you don't play with us anymore? I haven't played, you know, for a long, long time. And that's when, and that's when I told him. I said, because I've got my own gambling operation going now. You what? I said, yeah. I said, you know, it's not a big deal. I said, I've only got about six or seven guys. I said, they're with the commodity exchange. And I says, and I got them all with just a limit of 5000 a piece per game. And I go back and I sit down. I call Steve and I said, Steve, get the okay for me to wear a wire run Marco. Well, what do you mean? I said, I guarantee you, Marco's going to be calling me. Well, why? And I told him what I did. He said, what are you, why do you keep doing these things? And I said, look, I said, get the okay for me to wear a wire because I guarantee you he'll be calling. Sure enough, around one o'clock, two o'clock, I get a call from Marco. Now, I hadn't been to the club in probably a good two or three years, maybe even longer. I had never made any attempt to reconcile with these people after I came back and just said, you know, if anybody comes around me, I'll kill them and the rest of it. And uh, and I got no more business directly from him, even though the other people in trouble were calling me anyhow. So I get the okay to wear a wire. And when I go to see him, (laughs) this is how stupid he is, too. Like, I don't know what's going on in, in the whole program. He said, Tony tells me that uh, you're doing some booking. And I said, yeah. I said, you know, that, you know, I've only got a couple of guys, a few guys. And he said, well, you still got to pay, Bob. He said, uh, you know the rules. He says, you got to pay. He said, you know, and I says, well, you know, how does it <laughs> How does that work? How does that work? <laughs> he says, well. Give me an idea of what kind of what kind of you know what kind of action you're doing, and and I'll give you a and I'll give you a price, and then he, then he he says then you belong to us, and, and nobody else can touch you. And he says to me too, but if you don't come in with us, if somebody else grabs you, we can't protect you. You're on your own. And he says you know the rules, and he spells out the whole thing. I indicate to him that uh, I've got like six, seven guys. And I said, they're, you know, they're betting, you know, 5,000 a game, few games a piece, you know, usually the bears or whatever. We'll give you a break. It'll just be a couple of thousand a month. But he says, if you expand it off, it's going to be more. Now, (laughs) after I make a couple of payments to him, at the same time, I'm having this law passed in the the Senate through Johnny. Uh, I'm having them pass a law for us, and I'm working on that. And the deal on that is I'm going to be giving Johnny 50000 to pass a law. Now, is that strategy your design with the feds, meaning we can get Johnny in the trap by having him pass a law? Yes. What what happened, too, was Johnny it, Johnny was not a real target in the beginning. All Johnny think, cared about in the world was getting laid and playing and playing uh, racquetball and, and eating his nuts and whatever. He had no interest in anything. And jo- <laughs> what, do you, Johnny, what, do you, what do you mean, eating his nuts? So it was, it, all he cared about was getting laid, playing racquetball, and eating his nuts? What, 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 do, what do you mean? Was he? He, a, he was like an Olympic nut eater or something. He had some 
some nitwit, some hippie type or whatever that had him convinced that, you know, nuts are the thing in the world and eat nuts all the time and you don't have to eat anything else. But I mean, I just joke about that because. So basically had a dietitian or someone in his life who was recommending that he shift his diet to more nuts and grains, like a California thing. Yeah. He was like obsessive about it because clearly you knew about it. Well, I told you before, he took off when, when he was younger, uh, you know, with the hippie group out there in California and Blackie and Muggsy had to bring him back. But the other thing I was going to tell you too that's really important, after I'm building a case on them and I've got Marco explaining the whole thing on tape, the whole thing, you know, on tape, what you have to do. And I said to them, now I'll be leaving. I know I'll be leaving after this. I've already got the card game going. And the way I got the card game going, I told you, you know, the card game robbery was when, you know, I was making a payoff for my supposed booking operation. And as we're walking around the block, I mentioned to Marco that I'm playing in this card game. And the reason I did it is because I knew that when I told him, I knew these guys were out robbing all these games. He would, you know, he'd jump all over it. And he did. I told him we're playing in the Hancock. And he says, oh, that's not a problem. We, we've hit that place before, uh, you know, because they have a security guy down below. But anyhow, a after we got this going with him, now I tell these people, let's make a case on juice loans. In my own mind, I want to do it for two reasons. I want to prove knowing when I'm in court and I'm being cross-examined and Eddie will try to and the others will try to say that I'm busted out, uh, you know, and I'm in fear of my life. I want to show I can get a loan from these people. So I tell Marco, I want to borrow 50000 but just probably for a couple of months. What do you need 50000 for? And I tell Marco, I got a deal going with Johnny where we're going to fix something in the Senate. I said, and it's going to cost 50000 I said, I don't want to take the money out of the bank. I said, so uh, I need 50000 probably just for a couple of months. So, okay, uh, you know, and we'll give you a special rate. You know, we're only going to charge you. I think they're only going to charge me 2000 a month. So I get the 50000 from them. I make one payment. And that was when we had that card game situation. They were supposed to rob me. I had already convinced these guys that I'm playing in a card game with a bunch of dope dealers. And there's close to a million dollars in our pockets that, you know, we, we, we uh, run places up there in Geneva and other places and we meet and we play cards and it's a big, big card game. I had mentioned this to Marco one time and, you know, and he says, gee, you're not, you're not gambling anymore with us. And I said, I'm getting all the activity I need in the card game. And he, t he suggests, oh yeah, well, you know, maybe we can rob it. Well, you know, who is this and who are you playing with? And with that, that started the whole scenario. We set up this uh, situation up in Wisconsin where we had two SWAT teams up there. Uh, this is when I'm leaving town for good. Uh, Jimmy Wagner and Steve and a, a couple other agents came by the house. We're going to drive up there and we go up to Wisconsin. All I had was two suitcases with me. And this is going to be the case, Sarah, Sarah, because the next morning, uh, Thornburg, whatever his name was, was flying into Chicago to announce the indictments. And, uh, you know, so I had to leave town. But uh, anyhow, I gave, I gave Bob the address of, you know, of the place. And what it was, it was up in Lake Geneva, and it was right in an area where they had these houses that were set back about. There was like a dirt road, a circular dirt road. There were like these big, big houses, huge houses, about 50, 60 feet off the, you know, off the road itself, uh, set, you know, way back there. When I get up to Wisconsin, you know, I have no idea where I'm going when it's over. I have no idea, but I just know I'm not going to the witness protection. And I told them no, and I was going to take care of myself. 
we go in there and there's like two SWAT teams in the house and around the house and they had a one of those silent airplanes up above flying around up above and we get into the motel there in Lake Geneva and when we get in there the group in charge of it was the Wisconsin unit from the FBI that was the guy that was in charge of it because it was their territory there and I'm, I'm introduced to him and whatever and I get a phone call I told Bobby where, where I'd be and I get a phone call from Bobby and I said yeah okay I said, you know, uh, I'll be going, I'll be going over there in a little bit. And he says, yeah, he said, we already saw the place, he said. And this is all being recorded now. He said, we already saw the place and uh, this is going to be easy. He said, yeah, they got those big windows there. And, and, you know, and I see some, you know, they got some cars out there and I see some people are there. And I said, well, I'll be there probably in about 20, 25 minutes. I'm just getting, you know, cleaned up a little bit and I'll be heading over there. The guy in charge of the SWAT team says, you're not going anywhere. He said, you're not going to go in there. He said, uh, well, if somebody else stresses you and Jimmy Wagner says, you know, I, I'll, you know, I'll dress you. I used to wear hats all the time. That was, that was my thing along with trying it was, this was a winter time and, and I've got a trench coat on and I've got, and I've got a hat and I said, Jimmy, I said, no, that won't work. I said, they're outside somewhere watching the place. You know, if I don't come in there, it's not going to happen. You know, they're waiting for me to come in there. They're not going to mistake you for me. And, uh, so finally, uh, he, he talks to the other agent to let me go in there. We go into this big house. It was a two-story house. There's about 20 people in there. And this son of a gun makes me go up into the second floor and stay in the bathroom. They're afraid I'll get killed. They figure there's, there's going to be a shooting war here because these guys are going to have shotguns and everything, too. And what they had done was they put flash grenades out there in the area between the road itself and the house. I can listen to everything that's going on. I can hear them talking to the guy up in the plane, and they've got some agents you know, around there hidden in the bushes or something. And I'm listening to all the conversations that are going back and forth. Oh, about half hour, 45 minutes after I'm in there, and I got in there, it was around 10 o'clock or so, maybe 9.30, 10 o'clock. I hear about half an hour later, here they come. Here's a car. It's probably them. Okay, it slowed down. Yeah, it stopped. It's right out in front. Somebody got out. Somebody got out the back door. He's over here in the bushes, and he's got a weapon in his hand. Looks like he's got a shotgun. The car continues, and there's like a circular area that goes about a block away. It comes over and comes back onto one of these roads, and none of them were paved. These are all still you know, dirt roads up there. And now we don't hear anything. Now it's about maybe 10, 15 minutes later. We hear, here they come. It looks like the same car. Here they are. Yeah, they're slowing down. Yeah, they stopped. Now they're moving again, and, they, and they're going around again. They're heading back around again. And now we don't hear anything for about maybe an hour and a half, two hours. By now, it's about midnight. Uh, and these guys are, are saying, you know, I don't know what's going on. Something's amiss. And then we hear, here comes another car. And then they said they picked up the guy that was in the bushes, and they drove off, and they're gone. By now, it's about a little after one. Oh, well, you know, something something must have gone wrong. Something's amiss. It looks like that's the end of that. I said, wait a minute. Let me call Bobby Abenati and see what the hell happened. You know, they're ready just to throw in the towel. Well, that's the end of it. Well, I'm not. I'm going to see if we can still make a case out of this. And, you know, so I call Bobby and he's at home. By now, I'm at the FBI office back in out in the suburbs. They have a, an undercover office out there. And by now, it's about maybe three o'clock or so because they said, you're catching a plane. We've got tickets for you. We'll be going to Midway Airport. 
And so I called Bobby and I said, what happened? He says, motherfucker. He said, son of a bitch. He said, because Bobby's expecting a piece of the money and he's expecting there's, you know, there's going to be close to a million dollars in cash. We went in there. He repeats all that we've got on tape already from, from inside there. We dropped the guy off and then we went to get our work car and we got the work car. And on the way back, the work car broke down. He said, we went all over town. We couldn't find any place open. The work car is broken down. The guy running the show didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. He says, we begged him, let's go anyhow with a regular car. What they had was they had a secondary car they would use for the robbery and then, you know, and then just stash it. So that was why they didn't do it. I tell Jimmy, I said, Jimmy, we still got a case then. I said, we got this whole case. What do you mean? I said, because they didn't decide not to do it. The only reason they didn't do it was because the car broke down. I've got Bobby on the phone telling me, yeah, we've got the shotguns and whatever. He's telling me they've already taken weapons across state lines, etc. I said, we've got the case. And we did. And we did make the case that way. That's when I tried to say, we got to stop it. I'm not leaving. And they said, you have to leave because Thornburg is coming in from Washington to announce the indictments and Belukas is leaving. This was the bow, uh, so to speak, on the on the on the wrapping and you had to be out of town because you were going to yeah, be exposed. Well, yeah. It was over. Yeah, I had to. I had to. You know, I had to go because you know, I told you they wanted me to go, you know, for, you know, two or three times over the last couple of years. But now everything is all arranged and they're going to have 50 agents go out and hand out subpoenas and the rest, so we have to go. We wound up convicting every one of them and all that. We convicted Marco and we convicted Bobby and the rest, and uh, Marco got 15 years out of that. We got a conviction on the, uh, you know, crossing state lines to commit a robbery and carrying weapons across state lines. Bobby got 10 years and Marco got 15. Had you not been as aggressive as you were about who to target and how to do it, what would happen if you weren't as aggressive? Nothing would have ever happened. They'd, they'd, to this day, they'd be in business. It's just about all these things. The only way I can get it done was to, you know, to manufacture reasons and things to happen. So that's the conclusion of Conversation 14. Stay connected for Conversation 15, which further details Bob's life after he becomes an informant and has to leave Chicago. There's the trial of Pat Marcy. Bob never went into witness protection. He did not want the encumbrances of having to be dependent on the government and the further erosion of his freedom. So he's essentially in hiding and moving from city to city with intermittent trips back to Chicago to testify against the people that he helped bring down. So stay tuned for Conversation 15 as we're in the latter half and getting close to the end of the Cooley account. Thank you.